All right, why don't you turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. Nobody's exempt, Isaac, nobody. But you will have the mic again, and you can take vengeance. All right. Well, are you guys familiar with Isaiah 7 a little bit before we got here? Uh, you probably recall that it's part of it's been read to you every Christmas, at least. But um, oftentimes it's not held within its historical context, and I'll admit some of the, the challenges of interpretation uh, in regard to the things that follow the passage that we, uh, we quote. So we'll deal with some of that tonight, and uh, hopefully we can wrestle well with it. Uh, I always enjoy, when I come to a, a difficult passage, uh, then reading guys throughout history that have engaged with the text and wrestled with the same thing and, and you know, looked at some of the conclusions they've come to. But men who love the word of God and just you know, wrestle and wrestle and wrestle. And um, I've been actually doing that with a friend in regard to um, an, an issue regarding the Trinity. And we're not disagreeing, we're just trying to wrestle with, um, I won't bore you with all of it, but it has to do with substance essence and function. And uh, I don't know that I'd ever bring that debate to the pulpit, but uh, it's been fun to talk about. And I can't read about it at night because then I don't sleep. And so I just keep reading. And uh, it's not, okay, I need my sleep. So anyway. All right. Well, um, just to kind of introduce all of this to us, um, in this chapter, Isaiah mentions for the first time uh, in a series, the, the, the individual of Messiah, okay, this long-expected uh, individual that's promised beginning in Genesis 3, uh, and then uh, not with tons of clarity through Genesis until Genesis 49, uh, where uh, in that prophetic utterance to Judah. Uh, it says that one will arise from the tribe of Judah, uh, and uh, the messianic title is Shiloh, uh, to whom belongs the obedience of the people. And then from there, uh, we've, you know, the, uh, God narrows it down to a tribe from which Messiah will come, and then uh, prophecy to Judah especially to David, regarding one of his children, a child uh, in his lineage, will rise to the surface. And then it just, it just hundreds of them. And, uh, but for the first time in Isaiah, the, the Messiah is um, pointed out, at least in a few details. And that will continue through a series of prophecies to chapter 11, and then it'll pick up again as we go through Isaiah, both in Messiah's suffering and Messiah's victory. So a lot of good stuff in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah chapter 7, of course, um, at least a portion of Isaiah 7 is very important to the evangelical community, uh, but it may be an understatement to say important. Okay? Uh, the passage that is so valuable to us has to do with the virgin conception and birth of Christ. You'll notice that both are in the text when we get there. Both virgin conception 
and virgin birth, uh, a historical event that if not true, the gospel is no gospel at all. Okay, I've heard people say, well, if the, uh, if the virgin birth is not true, my God is bigger than that. Well, that's not really the point. Or if Jesus didn't live a sinless life, my God is bigger than that. Well, he's definitely not bigger than that one. But they'll say, well, if he didn't rise from the dead, my God is bigger than that. Uh, and I understand, I guess, the sentiment of that, but it really is naive, and uh, it's not okay. okay. Everything that God says about Christ did come to pass in his first coming. And everything he has said regarding the second coming will come to pass, past, just as he said. So um, this is super important to the gospel, not simply because the scriptures predict it, but because it is by the virgin conception that Jesus is fully God and fully man. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, uh, but simply another man, he cannot be the redeemer of sinful men. Only God in man can redeem man to God. Okay? So for that reason, the virgin conception of Christ is necessary to the gospel. Absolutely necessary. But there is something in chapter 7, uh, because, you know, when, because our focus of Isaiah 7 only comes once a year, uh, we give our attention to, of course, verse 14. And then some of the other details in the chapter are left out that while they're not as important as the incarnation, as the virgin conception and birth of Christ, it is very valuable to us as fallen human, human beings. And uh, in the text, not once but twice, God in his mercy uh, extends to Ahaz, an, a wicked king, the opportunity to repent and be reconciled. Okay. And it's under no obligation to Ahaz, but God being fully compelled within himself, he reaches out to this wicked king in order to turn him away from his ungodliness. And his ungodliness is, I think it's quite surprising. And so both of these realities uh, are intertwined into the chapter. We have a prophecy concerning the incarnation of God himself and the extension of God's mercy to sinful man, which is the ultimate purpose of the incarnation. So with that, why don't we stand, and I'm going to read Isaiah 7 to you. If, if, you, if you can't stand that long, it's okay. We won't judge you for not being a stander. I won't, at least. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, or Pekah, something like that, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz. You and they should really spell things so that we can pronounce them. Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the, the fuller's field, and say to him, that is Ahaz, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted a evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. 
And let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. That is, God with us. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the kings of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest parts of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks and, all, and on all the thorns and in all pastures. And the same day the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. For curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. It shall happen in that day that whatever there could be a thousand that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows and boughs, men will come there, because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. Lord, thank you for your word. And um, Lord, I thank you that out of this pronouncement of judgment comes the, the hope of Messiah. And it's almost as, it's, as if it's said in passing, uh, but it's not. And from here, it just builds into this, this portrait of who you will send to be the savior of the world. Lord, I pray that, you'd, that uh, you'd help us to understand and that you'd encourage us in our faith, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So there was, of course, there's a lot there. Um, let me give you uh, the gist of the historical narrative, and then we'll look at our two points that I talked about concerning Messiah and the extension of God's mercy. So the historical context is in 734 BC, uh, Rezin, that is the last king of Syria, we're going to have to make a distinction between Assyria, Aram, or I'm sorry, Syria, which is Aram, and Assyria. So Rezin, he's the last king of Aram. And then Pekah, he's the second to the last king of Israel. 
those two formed an alliance against Ahaz, the king of Judah. So just to be clear, the northern king of Israel, okay, which is called Ephraim in our text, makes an ungodly alliance with a pagan king of Syria, of Aram. And they want to overthrow the king of Judah. Now, if you want to get a fuller uh, uh, narrative of the story, it's found in 2 Kings 16. So they want to dethrone Ahaz. They want to, of course, install a king of their choosing who will be under their control. Uh, the intended vassal or puppet king was the son of a man named Tabel. His identity is unknown. When Ahaz and the people of Judah discovered the intentions of this alliance, of course, they were afraid. So the Lord sends Isaiah the prophet okay, to Ahaz to ensure him that this alliance against you is going to fail. It's going to fail. I'm going to intervene. Now, bringing this news to Ahaz was purely an act of God's mercy toward him, uh, purely, okay? Because Ahaz uh, is one of the most evil kings that ruled over Judah, okay? He rejected the God of Israel, and he sacrificed his son to the idol Molech, okay? And then he worshiped uh, a multitude of idols. And instead of trusting God to deliver Judah, what he decides to do is he's going to pay uh, the king of Assyria to attack Damascus, which is Aram, okay? And then if he can take down uh, Rezin, the king of Aram, then that will demolish all of the plans of the northern king uh, of Israel, okay? The other wicked thing that uh, Ahaz did was he wanted to appease the king of Assyria, so what he did was he, he desecrated the temple of God by removing the altar of sacrifice and he built an altar of sacrifice that he had saw in Damascus when he went up there to greet the king of Assyria and thank him for what he did. So he took the altar of a defeated king and he built it in his own temple. Of course, this didn't go well for him because uh, later he became a vassal of the king of Assyria. Okay, he thought that he could win their favor, become friends, but instead he became the servant of them. So this man who deserved judgment was delivered from the alliance, and by God, he's given this chance to repent. It's interesting, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it was the goodness of God that was used to lead Rezin to repentance, but he rebelled. So in anticipation of this, Isaiah said, if you will not believe, surely you will not be established. If you will not believe, surely, most definitely, you will not be established. With God's offer of mercy and reconciliation comes this warning, okay? So if Ahaz uh, failed to trust in the Lord, uh, it's just not gonna work out for him, okay? Now, Isaiah wasn't, he was speaking in spiritual terms. He's not talking militarily or economically because things basically turn out for Ahaz. He does become a vassal state for Assyria, but he wasn't murdered. His kingdom wasn't destroyed, okay? Things went much worse for other kings of Judah, but he's talking spiritually. If Ahaz does not trust in the Lord, he will be spiritually lost. He will not fare well. But God's mercy didn't stop here. He gets a promise of deliverance. He gets a warning, but then God extends himself even further to Ahaz. Look at verse 10. 
Consider what the Lord was offering him here. He says to, to Ahaz, ask a sign for yourself. Wouldn't you love it if God said, hey, just tell me what you want. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. And listen to this. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. You see, this is even more of an extension because it says, moreover, moreover, the Lord spoke again. He didn't have to, but he's really reaching out to Ahaz at this point and then telling him to to put in a request, but not just any request. He's really offering Ahaz a blank check. He's saying the very depths and the sky above are the limits. This is a pretty good deal. And so God is saying, ask whatever miracle you like as a guarantee that I will deliver you from this wicked alliance and I'll do it to demonstrate my faithfulness to you, even though you're wicked, and I'll show my power. This is great. This is something. I know of no other offer like this in the scriptures. And it was offered to the least deserving person in the scriptures. I know that in Malachi, to Israel, mind you, there's, you know, God says you can test me in this manner, you know, in, in, in terms of, of giving and all that. It's an old covenant thing. But that doesn't compare to this. I mean, there it was more this for that kind of deal. But God just says, what do you want to Ahaz? Name it. Now, of course, it has to be in keeping with God's character and, and all of that. But he just, he just says, say it. Say it. This is unique. But Ahaz, playing spiritual... He refused to ask for a sign. Now, the reason that he did that is because he knows that he will be held accountable. He'll have greater responsibility upon him if, he, if God does this for him. He will be more responsible for repenting and obeying. He will be more obligated to the Lord. So he refuses. He chose to continue to serve other gods rather than the one God who saves. But understand that because God promised to deliver Judah from the alliance, what did he do? He did. He did. And in spite of Ahaz's refusal to ask for a sign, the Lord gives one anyway. That was nice of him, okay? Which indeed, the Lord's sign was reaching for the stars, at least from our perspective, okay? But he didn't give the sign to Ahaz. The text says that he gave it to the house of David. That is, he's giving this sign to the royal household from which Messiah would come. The sign goes like this. Then he said, Isaiah says, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So initially in this this thing, Isaiah points out that the royal household of David had become corrupt, okay? Corrupted, which burdened and oppressed the people of Judah. That was bad enough. But as they became more and more idolatrous and offense directly against God, it says it, it wearied God. So at this point in Judah's history, and of course Israel's history, God's desire for a godly people, it hasn't come to fruition. The northern kingdom of Israel was far too, they were way too gone, far gone at this point, and the southern kingdom was almost as bad. It was a mess. So God would certainly have to judge his people because he had promised them, if you step beyond these boundaries, I will punish you. So God is holding his, keeping his promise there, but also because he, he, he promised to them, he will also deliver them. He, or we, well, let's put it in terms of 
redemption. Because you promised, he will redeem them. He will. And the hope of his redemption is going to come by way of a special sign or miracle. The word sign here is the same word used to describe the great miracles that God performed through Moses in Egypt. Now, those are some of the most tremendous miracles recorded in the Old Testament. Some of them, okay? But this sign is bigger. This sign is bigger. Emphasis regarding the miracle is communicated by the word behold and then by the phrase the Lord himself. The Lord himself. So this will not be a miracle that God performs through the instrumentality of a prophet like he did in Egypt through Moses. It's not like that. The Lord will perform this particular, peculiar miracle all by himself. That's it. This miracle will be like the miracle of the original creation. Uh, We make a distinction between what we say the immediate hand of God and the immediate hand of God. Immediate is him directly. It's his hand on it. Immediate is through some type of instrument. This is God interacting in the natural realm himself. It's a special miracle. It's a special miracle. And so this miracle will involve a virgin who conceives. Uh, That is, she will be pregnant, not by the assistance of a man, but purely by a miracle of God. And she will remain a virgin at least until after the child is born, just as the text says. The virgin both conceives and bears a son. Now, a virgin who conceives, now we're talking miracle, right? We're talking miracle. Even at that time, a virgin birth would be considered a great miracle. But I would say even more so today with all of our understanding of science and chromosomes and the rest. A woman by herself cannot provide the necessary chromosomes to produce another human being. Now, of course, you know, she could potentially be cloned from her own cells, but that would only make another woman. Well, how does that conflict with the text? We're talking about a boy, okay? And I know that is hard to distinguish from anymore today, but those lines actually exist, okay? It's going to be a male child. Now, her egg, of course, would only provide 23 chromosomes, which is not enough to produce another human being. Another set is required to make the child, and that's where the miracle comes in. God himself will have to create those 23 chromosomes, and then those chromosomes will have to be joined to the virgins. God is saying, this is the guarantee of my redemption. The virgin will conceive, and she will bring forth a son. Now, this, of course, has specific fulfillment in the life of Jesus. Now, notice how specific the prophecy is and how it came to pass. Mary conceived as a virgin, and Joseph did not know her. He did not have sex with her until after her 40 days of purification. Mary conceived and bore Jesus as a virgin. It's pretty specific, isn't it? Okay. Now, uh, As always, there are those within the church and those outside of the church who are always looking for ways to diminish the miraculous. So I think it's necessary to talk about that at this point. Some have said that the Hebrew word for virgin actually means young woman, implying that she's just a normal married young woman who gets pregnant, because that's a huge miracle these days, okay? But the justification for translating the word as young woman creates a number of logical and exegetical absurdities. First, I don't know if you can write this fast. 
You probably can't, so just pay attention. Okay, I can get them to you later. If this is just a young woman who gets pregnant, there's no miracle. There's nothing to behold. It reduces the miracle to a natural occurrence, and miracles are anything but, right? Norma Geisler asked the question, why should an ordinary birth be understood as an extraordinary sign? Does it make sense? Second, when the Jews translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language, they used the unambiguous Greek word for virgin, which is parthenos, when they translated Isaiah 7, verse 14. Okay. So those who spoke ancient Hebrew, I would say that ancient Hebrews spoke ancient Hebrew better than us. Okay, <laughs> Understanding the language, okay, and they translated this as virgin and not young woman. The Septuagint says Parthenos. Okay? And what is notable about these ancient Hebrew scholars is that they did their translation over a hundred years before Jesus was born. So these aren't Christian Hebrews. So they didn't have a motive to defend Christianity or the virgin birth of the Messiah per se. They translated the term according to what it meant and according to the sense of the passage. Okay? Third, that was two. This is three. When the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament, he used the same unambiguous word for virgin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, in the Greek, Parthenos, okay? when he quoted Isaiah 7, 14. So even the Holy Spirit believed that the word should be translated or understood as virgin. Now, I'm no scholar, but I think that the Holy Spirit's understanding of Hebrew is better than the ancient Hebrews, right? I think so. Fourth, in the New Testament, Matthew says that Jesus was conceived in the virgin womb of Mary as the fulfillment of 7.14. If the Holy Spirit says that Jesus' virgin conception is a fulfillment of one of his own prophecies, that word must be translated and understood as virgin. Fifth, in the Old Testament, this word always means a young unmarried girl, but the context everywhere in the Old Testament indicates that these unmarried girls are virgins who are of age to be married, just as we see with Rebecca in Genesis 24, 43 through 45. The word always refers to a young, unmarried woman who is a virgin, just like Mary. So, in keeping with the context, and the only way the biblical authors use the word, and the only way that the ancient Hebrew scholars understood the word, and in keeping with Isaiah's words that this will be a miracle, let's just be safe and translate the word as virgin. Fair enough? Okay. Now, some say that Emmanuel, which means God with us, was fulfilled by the birth of Isaiah's second son, uh, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Don't do that to any of your children, okay? That's in chapter 8. Well, there's some serious problems with this interpretation. Problem one, Isaiah's wife was no virgin. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz was her second son. That doesn't work, does it? Okay. Problem two, the child was not named Emmanuel. Problem three, this would be a self-fulfilled prophecy. You can't predict something and then fulfill it yourself and call it prophecy. God said that he would bring this miracle about by himself. Okay. Problem five, it was no miracle for Isaiah's wife to conceive. Chapter 8, verse 3 says that Isaiah had intercourse with his wife. Okay. And then nine months later, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz was born. Okay. Problem 6, this is a weird interpretation that is laughable. 
and would never have been recorded in the scriptures as a fulfillment of a sign. There is nowhere in scripture where something is prophesied in the text and then later fulfilled that is this stupid. I'm serious, okay? At the fulfillment of prophecy, we always get the sense of the miraculous, always, without exception, okay? Yeah. Problem seven, that interpretation implies that every pregnancy is a sign, and they are not, okay? Now, the prophecy continues. It says, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, the reference to the diet of the virgin-born child seems strange, but it, it does have literal fulfillment in history. Curds and honey are foods eaten by those in poverty or those who have fallen on hard times, okay? As we know, Jesus was born homeless. Is that true? Okay, he was born into poverty. The city of Nazareth was a poor community. Jesus' father was a carpenter, so he was born into poverty, and he was raised in poverty, curds and honey. But what does the last part of the verse mean regarding, excuse me, good and evil in relation to his diet? It's a weird statement, isn't it? Okay, yeah. It seems to be saying that by the time he is old enough to discern between good and evil, or good taste and bad taste, he'll be eating curds and honey. Now, it's actually hard to... to, to to interpret what is meant by the terms good and evil because they, those two words have such broad usage in, in the Hebrew. We're talking, it can be applied to just tons of things. It may simply be referring to food because those two terms are used in Jeremiah 24.2 when referring to two different baskets of figs. One basket of figs is yummy. The other basket is so nasty that they can't be eaten. Okay, same two Hebrew words. The, the two terms are also used to describe positive and negative circumstances that have no moral implications at all. You get what I'm talking about? Okay. It's possible that our text is referring to a time when the child will be able to discern between good foods and bad foods. That may be what is indicated in the next verse. It says, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Another viable translation is... Before the child has an opinion about the foods he eats. Have you noticed that your children develop opinions about foods when, you know, from like ages one to three or four, they start, you know what I'm talking about. So before the child has an opinion about the food he eats, the land that you dread will be forsaken by her kings. Or the text could be saying, before the child is able to exercise moral discernment, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Either way, this child is going to be young, possibly, when the land that Ahaz dreads is forsaken by both her kings. And we're going to come back to that in just a second, possibly. Okay? Of course, the land that uh, Ahaz dreaded was Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom of Israel. And then Syria. Now, within three years of this prophecy, Damascus had fallen to Assyria. And therefore, both Syria and Ephraim ceased to be a threat to Ahaz and Judah. 13 years later, Samaria, the capital of Ephraim, also fell to Assyria, and they were no more. Okay, they were, they were scattered throughout that empire. So while Ahaz got Syria and Ephraim off his back by paying Assyria, as we said earlier, he became the vassal state of Assyria. He was paying them tribute. Now, at this point, 
a difficulty in interpretation comes up. Who cares about discerning good and evil or good food and bad food uh, when it comes to this? Both are talking about a short period of time, okay, like a couple years. It's this next thing that is difficult. It's regarding the child's relationship to the downfall of Ephraim and Syria. If the downfall of these nations occurred in the near future, how do we explain the child being born over 700 years later when he was supposed to be very young when the nations were overthrown? Shouldn't he have been about three years old by the time Damascus was defeated? This is the challenge that, uh, of interpretation that I was talking about uh, among scholars. Okay? So I've been engaging with a number of them uh, and how they've just wrestled with this over the years. And I think it's, I think it's always healthy uh, when guys just wrestle with the, the scriptures. Let me give you the two interpretations over the centuries that have risen to the surface. Fair enough? Or would you like all of them? Okay, one group of scholars says that there's a dual fulfillment regarding the child, a dual fulfillment. Not that there's two messiahs, there's just two different children. There's a child born in the near future and one in the distant future who would be Christ. Therefore, at the time the prophecy was given, there was indeed a girl who was a virgin, but after the prophecy, she got married, conceived, and bore a child. And that later, there was another virgin who, while unmarried, conceived and gave birth to a son still as a virgin. Do you see the problems with that interpretation? Okay. Um, It makes the initial fulfillment miracle-free, contrary to the text. There's, there's no sign to speak of. And no child is called Emmanuel in fulfillment of the prophecy until Jesus himself. So this interpretation, I think, is difficult to swallow as most dual fulfillment interpretations are. Okay, I'm not, I think, I think that there's, not I think, I know there's many type and anti-type things in scripture, which we'll have to get into later. But dual fulfillments, I really wrestle with them. And I used to be all into it uh, early on when I was into prophecy and everything. I'm not that way anymore. I struggle with dual fulfillment prophecies because they have to be the same because of the specifics of the prophecy itself. And we don't have two virgin-born children named Emmanuel. Amen? We have one. There can only be one. Okay. Now, the other interpretation that has risen to the surface is, is more difficult in the way that it's addressing the text. But I still think there's exegetical justification for it. And maybe some more refining, refining needs to be done with it. So other scholars point out that this prophecy was, of course, not made to Ahaz personally, but to the future generations of David's lineage, as verse 13 indicates. So the prophecy of the child has to do with the distant future, and the prophecy about the fall of Damascus has to do with the near future. Now, how does that work? Okay. They say that the amount of time it would take for the child to mature to an age of discernment is the same amount of time from when the prophecy was given to the time of its fulfillment, which was about three years. In other words, just as it would take the child about three years from conception to an age of discernment, it would take three years from the giving of the prophecy to the fall of Damascus. Now, that interpretation honors the nature of what is promised in verse 14, and it eliminates the need for a dual fulfillment. It's a difficult way to to do it, um, 
but some very respected scholars, uh, especially Hebrew scholars, they don't have as much difficulty as I do with that. Okay? Uh, this interpretation, of course, doesn't remove the difficulty of interpreting verse 16, but it does provide an interpretation that is consistent with the rest of what is revealed in the scriptures. Okay, it's, when we talk about the overall biblical context, this is the one that is in keeping with that. Christ is the only one that fulfills this prophecy. And we can be certain of that because the Holy Spirit tells us that this is the interpretation of Matthew or of Isaiah 7 in Matthew 1. Here's the text. It says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the, uh, by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's the Holy Spirit telling us what that prophecy meant. Okay. Now I think it's important at this point to read through the historical narrative to get a full grasp of how all this came together. And I know it's not Christmas, but I want you to bear with me, okay? You don't have to stand up. But listen to the language of the narrative in the New Testament in relation to the prophecy in the Old. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The Parthenos, her name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? She loved those, those biblical phrases. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That's Luke 1. And then in Matthew we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. As his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the, as the, Lord, as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Exactly as the prophecy said. So after they got married, before Jesus was born, he did not touch her. She, she was, Jesus was conceived when she was a virgin. 
and she was still a virgin when he was born. Isn't that great? Yeah. So with all of the evidence, with all of this, the same words that were spoken to Ahaz, I think are appropriate here. If you do not believe, you will not be established. If you do not believe. God has sent his son into the world to save all those who repent and trust him. Amen? All right, now early in chapter two, I mentioned that as we study eschatology, that is events concerning the last days, it's, it's like having a blank canvas. And, and as we gather information from the scriptures, we apply that information to our blank canvas as if the information were paint, okay? And the more information we gather, the more eschatology comes to shape on this canvas. Well, the same thing is true when we study the identity of the Messiah in the Old Testament, okay? So just, just from the book of Isaiah, we can apply to our, our messianic canvas that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. So, you know, standing in the Old Testament era, looking forward, we're trying to gather all the facts. We're trying to paint this picture of who the Messiah will be. We're looking for a, a virgin-born child who will be a man that will be born in poverty and that he will be literally God with us, right? Now, as we said earlier, the mention of Messiah here in Isaiah 7, it's the first time, but it's the first time in a series of prophecies that will continue through Isaiah 11. And as we continue through Isaiah, we're going to come across a number of prophecies specific to Christ that will add a portrait of who the Messiah would be. But it'll also, at the same time, add to our canvas of eschatology, right? Because Jesus is both the suffering servant at his first coming, and he's the conquering king at his second coming. The same person, two advents, and two different missions. In his first coming, he came to save through suffering. At his second coming, he comes to rule and judge. Amen? All right, we'll go ahead and stand up, and we will hit, uh, in the next few weeks, those series of messianic prophecies uh, until we finish in chapter 11. My favorite is the one that we find in chapter 9. Good times. Let's go ahead and pray. Well, Lord Jesus, indeed, you are the virgin-born Son of God. And Lord, you came to save. And we thank you, Lord, that you did indeed come just as you promised. And as we go further on in Isaiah, just as you promised, you would bear the sins of the world. You would bear my sins personally. And that you take my judgment, my punishment upon yourself. And that you'd deliver me from the wrath which is to come. Lord, thank you. I pray, Lord, that as we go through all of this messianic prophecy, that we would have a greater vision of you, a greater appreciation of, of prophecy, Lord, of your word. And uh, Lord, we would just learn to trust you more, to be better worshipers, Lord. So Lord, thank you. I thank you for my church family. Just pray that you would bless them and you encourage them in their faith. In Jesus' name, amen.